Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, it's hard to believe, but we're already into the fall season. A good time to remind everyone to get their flu shots in a timely fashion this year. And as always, flu impacts the most vulnerable of our population, the elderly, the young, and those with chronic health issues. Well, there was a pretty surprising study released recently, Mark, which noted that only about 60% of Americans over the age of 60 actually got a flu shot last year. We need to do a better job to ensure that this sector of the population gets their vaccines, which is so vital to both their personal health and to good public health. And public health officials note that this year's vaccine is better matched to the strain of flu expected to take hold here. And the good news is that more Americans are insured than ever before, Mark, and insurance really now has to cover those preventive services like flu shots with no copay under the Affordable Care Act. So go out and get immunized. The Department of Health and Human Services recently scaled up the number of Americans who are now said to be insured under the Affordable Care Act, 17.5 million, up from 16 million previously. So impressive progress, but so much to be done. We still have millions of uninsured Americans. And HHS Secretary Sylvia Matthews-Burrell has set a target for the upcoming open enrollment, hoping to bring in another 10.5 million uninsured Americans mm. into the fold. Open enrollment begins November 1st. It runs through January 31st. And of course, they're looking to try and reach those young adults as well as the Latino population who are still underrepresented in the insured numbers. And of course, access to insurance and medical care means better access to preventive care. But a recent report out from the National Academies of Science is sounding a cautionary alarm. The report cautions that diagnostic errors are a major contributor to patient harm in this country and that all Americans are at risk. Well, that's a topic that our guest today knows well. Dr. John Ball led the team that conducted the first in-depth study on diagnostic errors and patient harm. And the numbers, well, they're staggering and alarming. We're looking forward to hearing about that study as well, of course, as their recommendations for addressing the problem. Lori Robertson also stops by. The managing editor of factcheck.org is always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love hearing from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Dr. John Ball in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The landscape in health insurance is changing under the Affordable Care Act. As more Americans are gaining insurance coverage, they're also finding themselves with more skin in the game. According to a recent analysis of 2015 insurance prices, the average American family will spend more than $17,000 in insurance costs, a slight increase from the year before. Most of the increases are being found not in the rate of premium increase, but in the amount of deductibles and out-of-pocket costs. According to a recent study by the Kaiser Family Foundation, while the average individual premium rose about 4% for Americans under 65 who get coverage through employers, the amount of -of out-of-pocket deductibles increased by a little under 9%. Either way, it's more out-of-pocket expense for the health care consumer. Meanwhile, the cost of pharmaceuticals continued to rise at a pace far ahead of the overall cost of health care. 
Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton saying it will be a cornerstone of her domestic policy. She said she'll be addressing the astronomical cost of prescription drugs, which exceed drug prices anywhere else in the world. Her plan would be to call for more pricing transparency. Critics claim the plan she's outlined will place more cost burden on insurers by capping consumers' out-of-pocket costs at $250 per month. Another aspect of her plan would be to allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices. Pharmaceutical industry analysts claim such measures would set the industry back significantly. And bad for bugs, bad for kids? A study in the recent issue of Pediatrics warns that early exposure to pesticides and insecticides increases the risk of certain childhood cancers, such as leukemia. The study found a 47% increased cancer risk from exposure to indoor flea and tick insecticides, flea bombs, and the like. A 26% increase for certain kinds of brain cancer connected to exposure to outdoor pesticides and insecticides. And texting may be dangerous while driving, but it has life-saving properties when applied to keeping cardiovascular patients on their protective regimens. In a study just released in the Journal of the American Medical Association, half of 700 cardiovascular patients were sent several weekly texts customized to their specific profiles, reminding them to put down that cigarette, skip that cake, or take that brisk walk along with their regular care. The control group received just the regular care. The texting group showed far better compliance with heart-healthy regimens and their health outcomes were generally better than the non-text group. With the proliferation of thousands of shiny, promising new apps in the marketplace aimed at improving health, this is one of the few studies showing old-school texting shows great potential in remotely managing cardiovascular patients. I'm Arianna O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. John Ball, Chair of the Committee of Diagnostic Errors in Healthcare at the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, which just issued a new report on diagnostic errors as part of their ongoing Quality Chasm series. Dr. Ball is both a physician and attorney, having served in several positions in the United States Public Health Service, including a senior policy analyst in the Office of Science and Technology Policy under the president. Dr. Ball founded the Washington Office Office of the American College of Physicians, where he's now the Executive Vice President Emeritus. He also served as CEO of the American Society for Clinical Pathology and was elected to the Institute of Medicine in 1992. He earned both his JD and MD from Duke University. Dr. Ball, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you for allowing me to be part of that. Yeah. Well, and uh, certainly uh, the work that your committee just released is front and center in the news. Just to put this in context, it's been 16 years since the Institute of Medicine issued its groundbreaking report to Error is Human, which revealed startling findings about the previously unknown level of patient harm occurring in healthcare some 100,000 deaths per year, and the IOM launched an ongoing investigation into the causes with its Quality Chasm series. But your committee just released uh, the latest study, and it's being called another landmark report on the breadth of diagnostic errors resulting in patient harm, an area that had not been studied before. I'm wondering if you could describe for our listeners what you mean by diagnostic errors and why the committee was tasked with investigating this topic. 
charge to the committee was fairly broad. It was to evaluate diagnostic error in the context of it being a quality of care challenge. It was to examine epidemiology, the burden of harm, cost of diagnostic errors, current efforts to address the problem, and to propose solutions along a variety of areas and with a variety of stakeholders. We came up with a definition having found that there were a number of definitions out there but not an agreement on what the definition was. And our, our committee defined a diagnostic error as the failure to establish an accurate and timely explanation of the patient's health problems or to communicate that explanation to the patient. And there, were, there, there are two major points to this. One is there are three components, accurate, timely, and communicate. But mainly, the definition is from the patient's perspective. And our determination was the patient wants to know, is it accurate, is it timely, and did I get told about it? Hmm. The, the reason that this was brought to the Institute of Medicine, now the National Academy of Medicine, was because of just what you've said. It's been 16 years since the report to Errors Human, and there's been relatively little attention paid to the topic since then. It was mentioned in Terrorist Human and the follow-up report crossing the quality chasm, but there are no recommendations with regard to it, and again, relatively little follow-up. And so that was brought to the attention of the Institute of Medicine, and the focus then was on diagnostic error as a quality of care challenge. Well, Dr. Ball, let's uh, talk about the report itself, Improving Diagnosis in Healthcare. Certainly, this is the result of a long investigation from a team of thought leaders in patient safety and, and good representation from a number of medical specialties. And the conclusion was pretty unmistakable that diagnostic errors in healthcare are responsible for uh, serious harm uh, to human health. And you issued a stark warning that perhaps every American is likely to experience some diagnostic error in their lifetime. And I think the way you've just phrased this as being not just about the accuracy of the diagnosis, but the timeliness, and then the communication, which really brings us into that whole arena of follow-up care uh, with patients and not losing people uh, to follow up, which really expands the universe of, of our thinking about this problem. But can you share the significant findings, you know, particularly in terms of cause, perhaps, uh, but also the toll that diagnostic errors exact on society in terms of healthcare costs, poor outcomes, suffering, and other notable impacts that you looked at? I think the, the first finding uh, was a fairly simple one, that there was a lack of agreement on the definition. And if you don't have an agreement on a definition, it's very difficult to find the incidence and prevalence of what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so that's why the first step was to come up with a definition, and again, from the patient's perspective. Mm -hmm. The second finding was the paucity of data. Uh, there's very little out there as far as what's known about diagnostic error. We have data from autopsies. We have data from medical record reviews. Mm -hmm. We have data from surveys of both patients and physicians. But by and large, those are little pieces of the puzzle. Assume you've got a jigsaw puzzle, and each of those are some pieces of the puzzle, but you can't quite put them together to come to, oh, this is what the cost is, this is the burden on society, this is the burden on patients. And that's why our assessment was of the data that were out there uh, that each person, on average, would uh, suffer a meaningful diagnostic error in, in their lifetime. That's the best we could do from what the data were. And I think the third finding was a, a lack of definitive measures 
on, um, on, on on how to get to what the what the burden was. That's why we tried in the definition to come up with three things that were measurable. Is it accurate? Is it timely? Was it communicated uh, to the patient? So the, the interesting piece is while we say this is a serious problem, at least all the data say it's a serious mm-hmm. problem, the data when added up don't tell us how serious it is in terms of burden on society, burden on individual patients, and uh, the total cost. You know, the report outlines a number of culprits, including clinicians ordering the wrong test, reaching the wrong diagnosis, as well as poor communication between providers and patients. And your report shows that uh, when it comes to diagnostics in healthcare, uh, a general breakdown uh, seems to occur. So where did you find some of the greatest vulnerabilities within the healthcare system uh, that has led to such a high degree of diagnostic errors? Well, perhaps strangely, one of the great vulnerabilities is to assume up front that a diagnostic error is the single uh, effect of a single physician with a single patient. That mm-hmm. certainly is not the real way in which things happen. Diagnosis occurs within a work system. That work system includes the diagnosticians and the people who support those people, but it also includes the organization within which the diagnosis takes place. It also includes the external environment, such things as payment, the like. It includes the physical environment. Think about the havoc in an emergency room. Mm -hmm. And it includes technologies and tools that people use. So the diagnostic process is not a simple linear process, and I think a vulnerability is to assume it is. Mm -hmm. So the other vulnerability, we think, is the lack of collaboration. You know, in sports, in football, the handoff is the place where much much of the errors occur. In medicine, uh, it's not just, again, a single physician. There's a lot of people dealing with it. And one of the, the things we call for is much greater participation of pathologists and radiologists, the people who are involved in testing, in determining with the clinician what sort of tests to order mm-hmm. because they're in the better position to be able to consult on that uh, and to be much more involved in the, in, in the process over time rather than simply being a number that the clinician gets. Well, Dr. Ball, as you know, improving diagnosis is a pretty complex challenge, so there's really no neat fix to address the concern, but you did uh, in your report make a series of recommendations that when taken together could have a positive impact. Um, outline some of these most promising strategies that you think might help to mitigate this problem. Well, first of all, we we didn't think that there's any magic bullet, any right. one thing that any one organization or set of people could do. And so therefore, we made a set of recommendations pointed to different organizations. When an Institute of Medicine committee meets Uh, Once the report is delivered, it can't do anything specifically to follow up on that, and that's why the recommendations are specific with regard to what other organizations can do. I think the the most important thing is that for healthcare provider organizations is to make improving diagnosis a priority. And, And one of the most important things they can do is to continue the change in a culture that's been developed to become a non-punitive culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, if someone is afraid to come forward and say, gee, I think you made a mistake here, uh, then we'll never learn from it. And what we're trying to do is not merely reduce errors, but improve the diagnostic process. And if you can't learn, you can't improve the diagnostic process. For educators, one of the things that we point out is that uh, medical education and other health professions, nursing, for example, have not taken in fully enough into account 
the learning sciences. Mm -hmm. How do people learn best? When people understand the concept, they can apply it across the board. If they're mm -hmm. only being spoon-fed facts, it's very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. So, And then two directed at certifying agencies, such as the specialty boards and to accrediting agencies that say, since we don't know what the answer to this, uh, you should at least require that the organizations that you accredit, the individuals that you certify, have a set of skills and have in place something to identify and to change diagnostic error. Mm -hmm. And we recommend that professional societies get involved voluntarily and look at, you know, in your field, what are the tough diagnostic issues and what do you think could be done about them? We also talk about that the payers should be um, looking more at paying better for collaboration, for evaluation and management services, and reviewing what the changes that are coming in payment might have on diagnosis. We're speaking today with Dr. John Ball, Executive Vice President Emeritus at the American College of Physicians and Chair of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine's Committee on Diagnostic Error and Healthcare. Dr. Ball, I like your sensitivity around diagnostic errors need to be more thoroughly discussed in the sort of medical practice uh, landscape and uh, also this focus in on non-putative culture being cultivated. Um, and, you know, I'm still amazed that uh, at the heart of this uh, in our country is the sort of the lack of a robust health information exchange between all the stakeholders. And I'm wondering uh, your thoughts on how we address the shortcomings of the electronic medical record and its lack of interoperability. And are there some examples of systems that are getting it right? Well, you've put your finger on something that the committee really feels is a barrier to good clinical practice that leads to good, good outcomes. IT has been developed not to serve the clinical process and more specifically the diagnostic process, which would have been an awfully good thing if it had been developed that way, but instead had been developed to support the documentation, billing, legal, and other kinds of, of needs. And then the clinical needs, to some extent, have flowed from that. So we have a series of recommendations in the report about the need specifically for health IT vendors and the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT working together to ensure that health IT is used in the diagnostic process. I recently spent uh, a couple of days in, in my local emergency room just observing, and one of the stunning things to me was that the caregivers were more at the terminals than they were with patients. You know, that's got it backwards, and we need to find a way to change it. We also say that the uh, Office of the National Coordinator ought to require that health IT vendors meet standards for interoperability by 2018, that that ought to really be a requirement, and that the secretary should work with health IT vendors so that we learn some more about the adverse effects uh, on the diagnostic process that health IT does. So you put your finger on something that was a really sticky issue, one that really matters to clinicians and gets in the way of the diagnostic process. Another theme that we've been hearing a lot about is the Choosing Wisely campaign that has really done such a great job at encouraging providers and patients to think twice before ordering that battery of diagnostic tests that can be costly and even sometimes dangerous in some cases. And we note this push to uh, by consumers and patients, in fact, to demand more testing, but not always so much focus on what to do about getting those results. And I'm really curious about your engagement of the active communication 
back with patients as one of the cornerstones of the work that you did. What did you learn about optimum ways to communicate with patients and what, what patients want? Well, Dr. Chris Castle, who was one of the founders of the Choosing Life campaign, was a member of the committee. And in part because of that, we really looked at the Choosing Wisely campaign as a potential model for what, uh, for what we could do. Uh, in addition, we heard from uh, many patients, uh, both in oral testimony as well as in writing, specifically the issues that they had of communication, their frustration that they couldn't get across what they intended to the, uh, to the diagnosing physician or other, uh, other clinician. So one of, one of the things uh, we have is on the website, um, and that's nas.edu slash improving diagnosis, simple, um, resources for patients and resources for, um, uh, for clinicians as well. We also, in the report, uh, reprint a couple of uh, checklists for patients about getting to the right diagnosis produced by the National Patient Safety Foundation, produced by the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine, about how the patient can be more informed when they come in to see the doctor, that they can be prepared, uh, and then uh, really ask the questions of, this is what I understand from what you said, am I correct? What is the follow-up going to be, both from me and from you? Um, And then in the middle of the diagnostic process, say, you know, but what else could it be? A real intent to continue to empower patients, which has been a theme that has been gradual over time. And finally, uh, we talk about that provider organizations have a real duty to make sure that their patients are health literate. And one of the hopes that we have is as we move more toward accountable care organizations, those organizations will have a real incentive to make sure that their patients are, or that their patients are health literate. You know, I really love your focus on on the patient perspective, but I wanted to touch also on the issue of payment reform. You know, there are a number of programs being launched by uh, Medicare and Medicaid to pay for performance, uh, not procedures. Could you give our listeners some examples of how payment reform could have an impact in the reduction of diagnostic errors? Well, payment reform was one of the areas that we hoped we could say more. But one of the things that each of the reports out of the Institute of Medicine have to do is to comport with what the evidence. And what we couldn't find was the evidence of of the effect of different payment systems on diagnosis. So the best we could do there is to say, let's take a look at a few of the things that we believe might have an effect. Uh, And some of those were, as I previously mentioned, greater coverage for evaluation and management services uh, and readjusting uh, the relative value for those. Mm -hmm the payment for pathologists and radiologists to consult prior to a test is ordered and after a test is ordered, particularly as we're moving more and more to personal medicine for the specific individual. Certain drugs work with certain genetic variants of certain cancers. Certainly not every primary care physician nor every oncologist can know everything about that. But the pathologist doesn't get reimbursed at all for the consultation. And so what we call for is changes in the way that is so that there's more encouragement Mm -hmm. of this collaborative nature of of the diagnostic process. Uh, I mentioned ACOs as a a possibility. That is, the more uh, organizations get responsible for population health, the likelihood is they're going to have more incentive to get Mm -hmm. their patients more and more involved. But all of those are aspirational, and they're at this point not based on real data that say they're going to work. So we argue for uh, CMS to, to do demonstration projects 
to evaluate the effect of some of these new uh, paying for value rather than for volume what effects those would have on the diagnostic process. We've been speaking today with Dr. John Ball, Chair of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine's Committee on Diagnostic Error in Healthcare, which just released a report on the incidence of diagnostic errors in medicine, improving diagnosis in healthcare. You can access the report and learn more about their work by going to nas.edu slash improving diagnosis or follow them on Twitter at NA Sciences. Dr. Ball, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Thank you very much for having me. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, there were some false claims about vaccines at the second Republican presidential debate. Donald Trump told a story linking vaccination to autism, but there's no evidence that recommended vaccines cause autism. And Senator Rand Paul suggested that it would be safer to spread out recommended vaccines, but there's no evidence of that either. Trump said that recently a two-year-old or two-and-a-half-year-old child had received a vaccination and a week later had autism. But as one of Trump's rivals, Dr. Ben Carson, said, there have been numerous studies on this and they have found no link between vaccinations and autism. This claim dates back to 1998, when a link was suggested by a paper published in the journal The Lancet. But that paper was retracted in 2010, and its author had his medical license in the United Kingdom stripped. As for Senator Paul, he said, quote, My kids had all of their vaccines, and even if the science doesn't say bunching them up is a problem, I ought to have the right to spread out my vaccines. In fact, the science doesn't say that this is a problem. There is no evidence that the vaccine schedule recommended by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention actually raises risk of any complications. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, Email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. According to the World Health Organization, some 35 million people suffer from some form of dementia, and 65 million people are expected to develop dementia by the year 2030, with relatively few treatments available and still no cure on the horizon. Often when cases become more advanced, patients are unable to live on their own. They may be in nursing homes, may be sedated. But studies show those dementia patients who remain more active, who stay outside the clinical setting, are more likely to have a much better quality of life. And that's the basis for a first-of-its-kind dementia village in the Netherlands, built in a small town outside of Amsterdam. Hogeve, an enclosed village built to look and feel exactly like a normal village, but designed to house patients with advanced dementia. I think one of the things that are very important to people with dementia is that 
they don't understand what's happening around them. They don't understand the world anymore. We try to help people understand what's happening and let them feel that it's okay. Co-founder Ivan von Amarangen says these patients have lost their ability to process new surroundings and the enclosed village provides a safe and pleasant environment for them to live where they can walk, socialize, remain engaged. The village was built on four acres with 23 connected housing units where patients are grouped based on their earlier personal lifestyles, whether it was based on interest in the arts or music, academics, gardening, and all living areas are manned 24-7 with trained clinicians who help to maintain a sense of normalcy as well as safety. And the director says it ensures that they maintain social connections. Those people you live with should be people that could be your friends, people you would pick to live with. Those people probably have the same ideas on life, the same values, and we call that lifestyles. Residents are free to walk throughout the compound. There are stores to shop in, restaurants to dine in, and a theater for performances and daily presentations. And the director says, relatively no need for excess medications or restraints that are so commonly used in dementia wards in so many nursing homes around the globe. The village is neat and orderly, easily navigable and pleasant. In a way, some have compared it to the movie The Truman Show. But the village co-founder says it's necessary to maintain a predictable routine. A planned and closed residential community designed to maximize quality of life for dementia patients, allowing a communal living experience that feels as close to normal as possible, creating a life with dignity for patients who might ordinarily be institutionalized, sedated, or restrained. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.